welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast. I am your host, Cody McBroom, the CEO of Tailored Coaching Method, a world-renowned online coaching company. This podcast is built to help you create a life by design. That's what the Tailored Life is. It's choosing to blaze your own path, make your own decisions, and create a life you desire. So in this podcast, you're going to learn ways to optimize your body, optimize your mind, optimize your relationships and optimize your business and career this is the podcast for personal development junkies and people who can't stop growing because they strive for more we are also going to bring on experts in every single field to teach you their own expertise so you're not only learning from me four days a week but I'm bringing other professionals in to teach you their principles too so if you love personal development and you constantly want to strive for more in life this is the podcast for you. Make sure you hit subscribe, send this to a friend that needs it, and keep listening to improve your life all around. And without any further ado, let's get into the Tailored Life Podcast. Today, we have 25-time world record-holding powerlifter, athlete, doctor of physical therapy, owner of Hybrid Performance Method, Dr. Steffi Cohen on the podcast today. Um, she has so much experience in the game. She has a ton of knowledge. She has a lot of certification degrees behind her name. Um, she's just one of the most experienced uh, powerlifters there are in the game. I mean, from CrossFit to Olympic lifting to powerlifting to a little bit of bodybuilding to now boxing and mixed martial arts. I mean, she really lives up to the name hybrid uh, with how she treats herself as an athlete and how she runs her company. And today we get to talk about her story coming from Venezuela and hustling and, and grinding and creating something of herself as uh, an athlete in high-level soccer um, and then diving into powerlifting and becoming again the 25 times world record holder in her sport at her weight class so she has a ton of uh, accolades behind her name in her her journey and her story so Today, you were going to hear the story, you were going to hear the journey, you were going to hear why she created uh, Hybrid Performance Method with her partner Hayden Bowie, um, and so much more. We talk about intensity and volume and specificity within a hybrid approach. We talk about frequency and, and how often you should change your program. Um, we talk about her new book that she just launched, uh, talking specifically about back pain, which is one of the most common injuries you see as a trainer or physical therapist, and any trainers listening or watching this podcast will know that. Um, so today, you're going to get so, so, so much value you and so much information. I'm really excited about this one. Uh, it's one I've been waiting for. It's one I've been excited about. Um, and it's somebody that I will definitely bring back on the podcast for a part two because I could have kept going on and on and on. Um, so without any further ado, uh, let's get into the episode with the one and only Steffi Cohen. First and foremost, I want to get your story. I want to get kind of how you got into fitness and everything. And, and you come from a really interesting background. Uh, I've heard you speak on multiple podcasts about it. And it's just such a cool story, um, especially because I'm a soccer player. That's the only sport I ever played. So it was cool being a, another soccer person who got into fitness, but also because you're a 25 times world record holding powerlifter, which is absolutely insane. To be honest with you, like I knew, but I didn't realize, like once I saw the networks, I went and just kind of did my homework again. Like, let me freshen up on our content. And I was just like, holy shit, that, like, that's, a, that's a big number to be a world record holder. So that, that's pretty fucking awesome. But um, give us the rundown. Like, how did you get into fitness? Where do you come from? Kind of give us your story in a nutshell. Yeah, what, uh, what level did you play soccer at? What's that? Curious. What uh, what level did you play soccer at? You oh, I didn't even. College? Not even college. I actually ended up having my second knee surgery right before college. So it like that's actually what got me into fitness. So after uh -huh. surgery number two on the same knee, I was like, okay, let me figure out how to move better and train, and and that kind of took away my soccer career. Smart man, at least. <laughs> uh, yeah. No. So for me, you know, I've been an athlete. I've been competing since I was twelve years old. I got first into soccer. Uh, got into the national soccer team when I was 13, played there until I was about 18, and then moved to America to kind of pursue the American dream. I wanted to become a professional soccer player, uh, so I applied for a scholarship and uh, went to San Diego State University, got offered a full ride, and it was, it was really challenging kind of you know, I was 17 when I first moved. So it was challenging being away from friends and family, away from my coaches and, and have to kind of figure out everything on your own on top of being part of a D1 team, you know? So I was struggling a lot with the language. I was struggling a lot with the, just the difference in training styles. You know, when I say that I was in the national soccer team for Venezuela, I think what you're picturing is way different than what it actually was like. 
playing playing professional soccer in a third world country is not what you think it was you know like I had we had just one coach that was our technical coach and that was it and we played inside of the uh, military base in in Caracas in the capital and in a dirt field on goals that had no nets you know we didn't have access to facilities gyms therapists you know nothing really nothing athletic trainers nothing we didn't have anything so moving to the states and and just seeing how much better they like the girls were from the team and how much access they had to all these things that I had no idea about my first impression was I remember we went to the strength room and these girls were like squatting two plates and I had never put a barbell on my back in my life and I was just so shocked their legs were huge you know they were doing all these agility drills and man I just felt that I was so far behind and felt so overwhelmed by by how much catching up I needed to do and at that point in my life you know 17 years old I still kind of relied on my parents and my coaches and my brothers to kind of like encourage me to to keep going when things get tough and I didn't have any of that you know didn't have anyone to like push me when 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 I was doubting myself so and this is like one of my biggest re regrets in life was was quitting then because I still feel and think genuinely that I had the skills to be really good at soccer but I just kind of gave up before it before it I gave it a genuine try. So I moved to Miami. Um, I, tr I, I convinced the coach to let me train with the girls for a few months without any promises and just realized that I just had to move on. You know, I was struggling so much with, with the language and passing tests and, and just figuring out culture and figuring out like just friendships and just, it was, it was a lot for me to handle. So I spent about a year without doing any sports, just kind of just trying to figure things out for just academically and was really wasn't ready to let go of that part of my identity as an as an athlete like it was something that brought so much joy and fulfilled me so much that I felt empty and felt kind of like this lost you know I felt like I didn't have that one thing that I that resonated with me the most which was that my, my athletic uh, career so that's what uh, kind of like sparked this new kind of discovery phase for me where I just, you know, was trying all sorts of sports just to try to see what I had an aptitude for naturally and what, and maybe like land a sport where I felt like I could develop skills to the level that I was envisioning myself that I wanted to compete at. And there was a lot of jumping around from sport to sport. Sometimes it'd be a week, sometimes it'd be a session, sometimes it'd be a couple months, sometimes it'd be a year, sometimes two. You know, it took a lot of bouncing around for me to find a sport that I felt like I could become the best at. And, you know, it's a, it's a different kind of mindset that, that a lot of people have. You know, some people are okay with just doing something recreationally or as a hobby or, you know, doing your best and hoping for the best and, and that's it. But, uh, you know, I, I really wanted to pursue something at the highest level and wanted to become the best at it. So kind of landed into CrossFit then started focusing more on just the weightlifting aspect of it because I felt like I was picking it up quick and I was progressing fast. So I thought, saw that as an opportunity. Started doing Olympic weightlifting, got, you know, got my numbers all the way up to becoming top three in the country here in the US. Didn't have a passport by then, so I couldn't compete in national meets um, or international meets for for uh, USA team. And eventually landed in powerlifting accidentally. I always say that powerlifting found me. I was in, I was in graduate school. I almost got kicked out of the program because, uh, because I failed one. I got a 74 in a test that I should have gone a 75 at least to continue staying in the program. And that was a little bit of a wake up call. It was kind of like a flashback to my first years of college where I was struggling and like, you know, getting a 2.2 GPA and, and focusing on the wrong things. So that, you know, it was a wake up call. I, I knew that I had to kind of take a step back from those athletic goals, but again, wasn't gonna make the same mistake, same mistake I made when I was younger of just like quitting, right? So had to find a way to continue being, to continue just for myself, uh, you know, fulfilling that passion for sports and, and continue feeling like an athlete. Um, and also, you know, juggling school and having that plan B, which was my doctorate degree in physical therapy. 
So yeah, man, I just, uh, I remember I went to the gym. I was with Hayden with my partner and he just suggested that I try a deadlift. I had never done a sumo deadlift in my life. And the first time I, tr I put some weight on the bar, I ended up pulling 315. Fast forward six months later, I was already breaking world records in the deadlift. Uh, and just the progress came so fast. And, you know, now in hindsight, looking back at my powerlifting career, not that it's over, it's over for now because I'm putting it on pause. Maybe we can talk about, about that a little bit later. But um, yeah, it was, I felt like I was in this rat race to like continue getting stronger, pushing the limits and pushing my company. And, and, and it wasn't really for me. It wasn't for me. You know, I was doing powerlifting because I was good at it and that was it. And because it was good for my business, but it wasn't enjoyable. It was five years of like, really hitting my head against the wall and, and pushing my body to its absolute limits. Like I'm talking about a gram of ibuprofen a day. Like that's how much pain I was in when I was training, you know, being miserable every training session and then ending in like pity party crying about how frustrated I was because I wasn't making progress at the same rate or whatnot. But, you know, lots of valuable lessons there. And um, this weekend I got to see everybody compete over at Hybrid Showdown in my gym and it was bittersweet sweet as much as like i hated some of the training at the same time i do miss, miss competing yeah. so yeah so now we're here last year i had a, a little bit of a you know a setback with with my back i had a back injury and just really realized that i needed to take some time off from beating my body up so much and that's kind of like how i transitioned to boxing love it yeah there's there's quite a bit that i actually want to kind of pick apart from that um yeah. And your story kind of explains why hybrid is called hybrid because you did so many different things until you kind of were able to show people how to do the same. But um, first quick question, just selfishly, how many times were you competing per year? Because five year span, 25 titles, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. So initially, you know, the first, I want to say like the first three years I was competing five or six times a year, like really anywhere, anywhere where there was a competition opportunity for exposure, I would go. I would show up as many times as I could. Do you think that, you know, because I've talked to a lot of high-level athletes and, and obviously I've listened to, um, I just respect the athlete in general. So I listen to interviews and stuff like that all the time and I'm already studying on athletes and everything. And there's a lot of people who say like, I was in pain or don't do what I did because I, you know, I burnt out or whatever. Do you think there's like some value in that though? Like where you almost have to grind that hard to become where you're at? Does that make sense? Because I think a lot of times we don't really recommend it because we know to our clients, it's like, it might not be the smartest idea, but at the same time, like that did that, that was necessary to get to where you are. Listen, I mean, if you're, if you're flying close to the sun, you're going to burn some feathers. That's just, it's the name of the game. Like if you're trying to see what your absolute level of strength, your absolute athletic potential is in X, Y, or Z, you're going to get beat up. It's impossible that you won't. A lot of people, you know, talk about what the minimum effective dose is for training. And I feel like that's so backwards because like nobody ever became the best in the world by doing the least amount of work. Nobody, nobody. You do the most amount of work that your body can tolerate and you see where the fuck that gets you. That's how it works. That's how you achieve greatness. Not through, oh, let me see like how little I can get away, you know, how little I can get away with. And let, let's see if that works. Nobody, man. Like, talk to any high performer. They'll tell you, you know, I was just uh, training with um, Rafael Dos Anjos, a, a UFC champion, flyweight, middleweight, whatever, how many weight classes he has. A he's gotten a championship uh, belt on. And, you know, he was telling me this crazy story about how he, when he first, he got beat because he's a jiu-jitsu specialist and he got beat by a striker. He realized, oh, yeah, I got to improve my boxing skills. I got to improve my striking. Uh, and he went to this camp in, I forget where, in Asia. And pretty much like he had like a line of 50 people in a ring. And every minute, everybody, every minute someone would change, you know, so it, they would be fresh and he would be just fighting someone every other, every minute for 50 minutes. Just imagine that. Like, that's just one day that he told me. So... I did, I did boxing for a little bit and, and they call that, uh, well, at least where I'm, they called it bull. Oh. I did one minute, one minute. And each guy came out for like 10 to 15 seconds. And I like, I was just jacked up by the end of it. So I can't even imagine 50 minutes. 
50 minutes, you imagine. And, and that's just one example. I mean, these guys, especially for UFC, because UFC, or sorry, MMA is kind of like the, the CrossFit of martial arts. Mm-hmm. If you want to master that, how, like, how many hours do you think these guys are training? Yeah. Eight? Dude, so much. Yeah. Um, kind of a related question, but more towards like your business mindset. Do you think, I, I've heard Arnold Schwarzenegger say this a million times. I've heard Gary Vaynerchuk say it, but like being from another country and like, like moving over here and pursuing professional sports, and all that stuff. Do you think that gave you a sense of hustle or grit that, that some people don't get to experience just because of your upbringing and where you come from? I think especially living or growing up in a country like Venezuela, that kind of like hustler mentality is embedded into us. Like really, if you talk to any of my friends, they're always thinking about, oh, look at this business idea I had. They're always pitching, my, my closest friends from high school that live here, always pitching me on projects. So I think that, I don't know if it's a matter of like just how little resources there were there or, or how many, how limited, how limited uh, opportunities were like, you know, to climb a corporate ladder, like there's no such thing, right? Like there's no, there's not that many available jobs for well-established companies or, or set paths like there are here. So you have to just fend, fend for yourself. In Spanish, there's a saying, o corre o te encaramas, which the direct translation is either you run, either you run as fast as you can, or you figure out a way to get on top of the tree. Like you, you just gotta figure it out somehow to save yourself. And that's kind of the mentality that, that I have growing up in a, in, a, in, a, in a country like that where everything is so difficult and you just kind of have to fend for yourself. So I moved to Miami and I, at 17, I was already having like side hustles. You know, I was trying to figure, I, I paid for my college tuition through selling dollars in the black market, you know, because that's the only way that I could afford it. So back then, well, and even now, the currency is controlled, so you only get access to a certain amount of dollars that you, you can purchase at the fair market price. And anything outside of that, you have to buy from the black market, which is inflated by like, you know, 15 times or something crazy like that. So what I would do is I would buy my family members' dollars, right, at the fair mar- market price because they didn't really need them. They lived in Venezuela, they weren't studying, like they were helping me out and then I would sell them in the black market. And that's kind of how I paid for my tuition. And like that, I have so many examples. Like I made bathing suits at some point that I was selling. I was doing hair treatments for people. I imported singlets, um, TRX machines that I bought from Alibaba in China and I would like sell them here. It's just crazy, man. So I think absolutely, I think that, that some people, not everybody, obviously, but some people that grow here, grow up here in the States that are given, not maybe not given everything to them, but that are just kind of like used to the system and just expecting of it helping them and it guiding them, you know, okay, you graduate high school, then you go to college and then you go to grad school and then here are seven jobs for you. Like everything's laid out so perfectly for you that, that you don't even have to think because they don't want you to think that that's not something that's that's encouraged in this country critical thinking man i got in so much trouble college and grad school for questioning things you know it's just not the way that people do things here so yeah absolutely i think that my my upbringing definitely influenced the way that i look at the world and and how i kind of like find loopholes and and find my own path to figure out things and to make myself give myself the lifestyle i live I love that. Obviously, I, I'm, I'm from here, so I don't have the same experience, but I love hearing stories like that because I like to think I have a similar mindset. Um, I, I would love to, to know how that evolved into hybrid. Like, how long have you been doing this? Like, when you moved here, you were in college and you were doing that stuff, and then to when you started hybrid to where you are now, like, what's that timeline look like? Which I think is helpful for people because a lot of people... I get questions about like, how can I, you know, be a better online, like, how can I start being an online trainer and stuff like that? And I'll say, oh, like, go train people in person for five years and start writing a blog for, you know, do like the work and learn how to do what you need to do. Um, And people don't like that answer. But I love hearing people like you that are very successful, like, give us your timeline, show us what what you did to create hybrid. And then like, what the story behind hybrid was, you kind of already explained it, but why hybrid is called hybrid and what you guys try to deliver. So hybrid started at the same time that my transition into powerlifting began. So at that time I was still trying to juggle weightlifting and powerlifting. 
and obviously for business purposes, just, just, you know, the fitness world in general is very vain and superficial. So I understood that I had to play that game as well and, and have something to show for, you know, look like I lift, for example. So that's kind of where the slogan came from initially was look like a bodybuilder, lift like a powerlifter, move like a weightlifter. And it was all just based around our Hayden and I's training at the time, which was a mix of Olympic weightlifting, powerlifting and bodybuilding accessories. So, um, you know, just genuinely, like we were, we were training that way and we started getting some questions about, not a lot of questions, but some questions about our training. And just Hayden at that time, he owned another business called Working Against Gravity, which was a pretty successful nutrition uh, online business. And he ended up selling his shares there and, and, and transitioning into hybrid with me. And yeah, so what's up, buddy? So just based, look, at that time I had what, like 3,000 followers on Instagram and Hayden had maybe like 11,000. And we, we put all of our eggs in that basket. Like Hayden took a lot of the money that he had made from selling the, the stocks of his other company into developing software for this one. And we just kind of went all in. And when the software was ready, we put it out there on social media that we needed some beta testers to see if the, how the software was working. And we got about 600 emails in the in the wait list so obviously that made it pretty clear that there was a, a market that was interested in that style of training and that was it was catching eyes uh so that's initially how how hybrid was born um i would say that like if you think about just the 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 along the decision of creating our own software you know we got into it not thinking like trainers not thinking like coaches but thinking like entrepreneurs and I think that's something that a lot of people who want to develop an online coaching career make the mistake of. I was just recently talking to a friend of mine who was, you know, he's been, he's been a coach for 10, 15 years and he's still taking like continuing education courses for his own self, not, for, not to maintain any sort of credential, just for himself. Because he thought that that was the missing link for him to get more notoriety or get, or get more uh, clients or grow his business or whatever. When in reality, once you make that switch from I'm a coach to I'm a business owner, I'm an entrepreneur, that's where the power comes from. Because that's when you're you're gonna start making decisions that would that will make your current clients happier and make your current clients stay with you, make your current clients talk about your services to up to their friends, and then increase your ability to acquire new clients. So just you know, from the beginning, we just behaved so professionally, creating our own software, having a customer service email, you know, setting, creating rules and, and organization and step-by-step -step processes and educating our clients. It was all very um, well thought of and it was all, you know, very premeditated and, 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 and organized. And it was one of our biggest kind of differentiating factors at the time, uh, given like the, the competitors that were in the space. I love that. I think, I think you hit the nail on the head. So many people drop the ball on that and they, they keep coaching almost like a, as a hobby, right? And they don't think of it as, as a real business or have like a corporate mind. Um, so that's great. When, when kind of going back to the, the hybrid performance method, what are your thoughts on specificity as a whole? Because this is, this is an interesting topic because there's, you know, the rule of specificity is pretty damn important when training, but the hybrid model, which I would hundred percent agree with, like your slogan is like, word for word, the ideal scenario for anybody who loves to lift, you know, um, how do you implement specificity in that? And, and how much do you even prioritize specificity? Well, obviously, you know, if, if you're doing a hybrid style training program within the program, there are different blocks that specialize on different things, you know, that prioritize different things. So there's a strength, there's a GPP, general physical preparedness block. There's a strength block. There's a, a, a block where you focus more on your, on your snatch clean and jerk and then strength takes, takes the back seat and so on and so forth, you know, periodize across the year. Would I recommend that to somebody who's trying to become the best powerlifter in the world? Absolutely not. You know, if you're trying to become the best powerlifter in the world, all you have to do is squat, bench and deadlift a lot every day consistently for a long period of time. Same for weightlifting. You're trying to become the best weightlifter. Obviously don't go and try to pull a three rep max deadlift and then try to max out your your snatch in, in three weeks. Like it's just, it it's, um, 
unnecessary interference. Yeah, and you're doing unnecessary work that is not really taking you any closer to your goals. But for somebody who is just a regular gym goer that wants to feel good, move well, get stronger, you know, then it's a perfectly appropriate program because it'll still, you'll still make progress, make strength progress. You'll still um, sharpen your technique in the snack clean, your have fun. You'll still improve your body composition. You just definitely won't be as strong as you can be, as sharp as you can be, and as big as you can be. You'll just kind of like be hybrid, right? Like a little bit of everything. Do you think that uh, this kind of cures program hopping? Like if we talk about people who aren't advanced athletes, I feel like program hopping is is one of the bigger issues we see with the people we work with are kind of like advanced gen pop. They're definitely gen pop, but they know enough to where they want to dig deeper and they get excited about by programming and they want to hop back and forth. But you just mentioned these different blocks and like talking about a year, whereas like some people will buy an ebook program that's four weeks long and they don't even consider what's after that. You know what I mean? So do you feel like this is a good way to go about it just to avoid program hopping and, and how, how do you convince people that they need to stick with it for long enough to go through these phases and return back to the initial phase they started with to see and reap the benefits, if that makes sense? Uh, you force them financially and contractually. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a minimum three-month commitment, actually, in our membership, and, and we explain why, and that's the exact reason why. It's like, look, you're not going to see any sort of changes in four weeks. That's unrealistic. And even in, 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 and even in, in um, 12 weeks, it's like, you might or you might not, you know, uh, but at least, you know, there was like the, the, the contract and the financial uh, commitment to doing a thing for three months, at least, you know, they give the program an honest, uh, an honest go, but it's hard. It's, it's really hard to, you know, once somebody has a belief, it's really hard to convince them against it or to try to explain it in a different way and try to get through a person once they've already made up their minds about something. So, you know, we do our best to try to explain why sticking with something for a long period of time is the best thing they can do and why they don't, they don't really need to try a bunch of other things to make progress. But in the end of the day, like, you know, it's their choice. Yeah. So this, this kind of relates to something you, you filmed a video recently about muscle confusion and it was hilarious. And one of the reasons I loved it is because uh, an early mentor of mine in the strength world, um, sometimes we'd ask questions and this, I think I met him when I was 18, but he would say muscles are stupid. He was like, they don't know what the fuck you're using. They just know tension. They know, you know, and he would go on the spiel. And as soon as you started kind of pointing at those things that muscles actually know, it, it reminded me of that. And I love that. Um, but what's the sweet spot, right? We know muscle, like shocking the muscle isn't necessarily a thing, but what's the sweet spot of variation and of novelty? Like, obviously, like you mentioned in the video, like novelty can be good and it can be like psychologically stimulating, if anything. Um, but what's that sweet spot for a block? Like how long should people stick with something? And does it, is it differ between compound versus isolation versus accessory? Like what have you found over the years? It really depends on what the goal of the person is. You know, if, if, if your goal is to get as big as you can, you need to find the right exercise for your body proportions that lead to the most muscle growth for you personally. You know, like it depends on like origin, insertion of your muscles. You know, some people, some people can grow their pecs doing pec flies. Some people can't just because of the way that that muscle is oriented in their bodies and the way that their humerus attaches onto their shoulder blade. There's, there's a lot there. That you can that you can think about and that you can get really uh, nitpicky about. So for the purpose of bodybuilding, honestly, like if I was writing a bodybuilding program for somebody that fully trusted me and was gonna do it as I say, I would have maybe twelve exercise twelve exercises on rotation and never change them, because the the better that you can get at those exercises at creating tension in those angles in those exercises the more you're going to grow. So for the purpose of bodybuilding, yeah, like I don't think that, I don't think that variation is that important once you've found the exercises that are perfect for your body type. You know, the whole, the whole argument about having weak body parts and not being able to grow them has nothing to do, has very little to do with your genetics and a lot to do with your execution of a movement and you're not performing the right exercise for you. Uh, and then when it comes to, you know, very specific things like powerlifting, for example, 
how important is variability for that? I would say it's a little bit more important because like how much, how many times in a year can you perform a squat bench deadlift without losing all of your wheels? You know, I always say this about powerlifting. It's not about how fast you can get strong, but how long you can stay injury free. And once you change that mindset, that is everything. Because you'll get strong eventually if you can stay in the game for a long time, right? And how do you do that? Yeah, you incorporate other elements of fitness and athleticism into your routine so you don't burn yourself out. So that, so that you don't start accumulating a million chronic injuries. Like look at how beat up all powerlifters are. They have this horrible mindset of like, oh, 10 rep squats is my cardio. No, man, you're just lazy. You know, get on a treadmill. I can hear your breathing just when you got in and out of the car. You have a problem, okay? So, you know, you, you have to you have to do your mobility. You have to do your conditioning. You have to uh, work with light weights for high reps, with heavy weights, with few reps. You have to kind of like do all of that across the year. And I think that's the aspect of periodization that people miss. It's not just sets, reps, and intensity. It's not just that. It's also, okay, within a year, how are you going to periodize things that improve your health and that, that keep your machine well-oiled and that keep it going and that make you feel healthy and good? Because without health, you have nothing. Without health, strength cannot exist. So by incorporating other elements from maybe you know, other exercises from other sports into your routine across the year, that's how you keep it going. So again, I, I bounce around a lot, but I guess it just depends on what the goal is. I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and I've said something similar uh, in a different way, but I like how you frame it because it is, it is pretty common to see a bodybuilder who does the exact same routine. It's a good routine, but they do the same thing for, you know, basically as long as possible until they stop progressing and then they'll finally change it up. And you have to have a patient mindset for that. Um, with powerlifting, there was like, I remember when, I mean, DUP has been around for, for a really long time, but I remember when it kind of resurfaced and Mike Zordo started putting out a lot of information and I was like, this is dope. Like I'm going to bench squat deadlift three times a week. And it would like work for like eight weeks. And then I felt like shit because I was bench squat and deadlifting so much, but I'm curious of like your thoughts on that, not necessarily DUP, but like the frequency of those barbell lifts and, and how do you approach it? I think it has everything to do with uh, experience level and how long you've been, how I take that back. I think it has everything to do with how close you are to reaching your absolute potential mm. and what kind of numbers are you moving. So for example, if you, more so the absolute amount of weight that you're moving, we're all made of the same muscles, tendons, ligaments, right? And bones. So the rate at which those structures can recover from having a lot of weight on them is pretty much the same. Obviously, there's going to be some some sort of uh, a certain amount of uh, variability between between person to person, but we all recover pretty much at the same rate. So, how many times, if you're say you're you're already you've gotten to an over 400 pound squat, you're over 500 pounds in the deadlift, how many times do you think you can squat and deadlift that weight? And for how long without your body actually breaking down? And how many other things can you incorporate it into your program that won't detract you from being able to perform those lifts at the level that you need to? So if you look at my, my training, like my uh, programming when I first started powerlifting or when I first started lifting weights versus at, towards the end of my career, it's night and day. Like I, when I was doing Olympic weightlifting, I was training nine times a week, squatting twice a day. It I would do a front squat session in the morning, a back squat session at night, every day. So, or every other day, a double squat session. Then when I transitioned into, into powerlifting, I was squatting, I wanna say four times, four or five times per week. And it was like six reps, five reps, four reps, three reps. Yeah, six, five, four, three. Yeah, it's four times a week. Six, five, four, three. I was deadlifting three times a week, a high, a high uh, volume day, ten rep max day, a moderate five rep max day, and a two rep max day every week. And I, I ran that program for two years straight, like the same. 
over and over and over and over and made insane progress. But then it got to a point where, yeah, okay, my 10 rep max deadlift day was uh, 470 pounds for 10 reps, okay? My five rep max day was 525 pounds. My three rep max squat day was 450 pounds. And I started feeling it. You know, it really started affecting my ability to, to recover. And the amount of variation I had from training session to training session was absolutely insane. Like I would come one day and absolutely annihilate 535 pounds on the, on the deadlift for four reps. And then the next week, I barely be able, I'm not kidding you, I barely be able to do 400. Like 400 was a one rep max for the day. And it was just this like continuous, like self-sabotage. Like I'm just pushing way too hard, way too often, not able to recover, accumulating all of these injuries and doing myself a disservice. Like, and, and also if you don't know me by now, but obviously outside the squat bench and deadlift, I was doing a million other things. My training sessions were four or five hours long. So it just got to a point where I, I finally realized that, that I didn't need that much that much frequency, that much volume to continue making progress. I had already dialed down my technique. All I needed to do was again, like I said, stay healthy and keep my nervous system as fresh as possible so I can perform. So I completely changed my approach the last two years of, of my powerlifting career to just squatting two times a week, deadlifting one time a week, eventually one time every 14 days, uh, benching three times a week because my bench is really weak. It's not but yeah, and, and really any high level powerlifter that I've ever talked to has had a similar experience. Like Yuri Belkin, who's one of the best powerlifters in the world as well, if not the best in the, for, for guys, I think he, yeah, he squats, benches and dead, like he does one squat session, one bench session, one deadlift session, no accessories. That's all that he does during a powerlifting prep. Same for Mariana Gasparian, who is the best female powerlifter right now currently. Same for her. She does one squat session, one bench session, one deadlift session, no accessories. She cycles it in, in um, like I said, in blocks. So if she's far away from a meet, she'll do maybe a little bit of conditioning, maybe some bodybuilding and so on. But for, you know, five, six months or four to six months, however the, long, the length of her prep is, she's only doing that. So, yeah. It you know. makes a lot of sense. I mean, if essentially the stronger you get, the more load you have on your body less frequent you should be pushing yourself to that that amount but um i think this this segues into the intensity conversation pretty well because um, obviously you have some experience being on both ends of the intensity spectrum but um i really enjoyed and if people haven't listened to uh Steffi's interview with jeff nippard um it's on youtube or i think he did the full one on podcasts like itunes stuff that's the one i listened to um but it was cool what he did because he had and this is where like I love the evidence-based movement. I think it's doing great things, but you, you mentioned something earlier that I think kind of, you didn't say the evidence-based movement does this, but there's like this, well, you can actually make gains with like a three RIR and it's like, okay, but now you're just going further and further and further away from really pushing yourself. And, and to me, most people don't even know how to properly actually gauge RIR in the first place. But um, I'm curious your thoughts on this because it was kind of one of those things where like by science, that does make sense. I get it. And then there's all these jacked people that I like, I really respect that really fucking crush it in the gym saying no, like that's not enough. And part of me is like, I love science, but experience, like you can't argue with what's there, you know? You can't. And honestly, like just most research studies are so flawed and are misinterpreted and people only read the abstract and the conclusions and the most important parts of a, of a paper are not those. Like, what are the methods? How was the study designed? Like, how many people were there in the study? So people love to extrapolate just the information that they want to hear. And then that's what they, they disseminate to the masses. And that's, that's a problem. And yeah, going back to the whole evidence-based conversation, it's like, we have to consider what evidence-based thinking or practice actually is. So it has to take into account the research. What does the literature say? What's your experience? Like, how have you taken that research and applied it to somebody? And then how do those things apply to the person that is in front of you? Because that's different. Like, who was the study conducted in? Was it, you know, experienced powerlifters? Was it uh, people that take PEDs? Was it, you know, young people? Was it old people? It just varies so much. And something that I always like to say is that 
you know, especially when it comes to strength training, it really isn't that complicated. The principles are, methods are many, principles are few. Dude, there are so many ways that you can, that you can uh, write down a program that will work, that is just silly to even argue about what the best way is, because we don't know. The best way for me might not be the best way for you, period. Because it, just think about it, the lifestyle alone. You know, what do I do all day versus what does somebody else do all day? How are they recovering? What's their stress like? What's their, you know, what's their mindset like? What is their, you know, it's just so many things. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And that's why I tried it all. I really did. I tried it all. I traveled everywhere across the U.S. and met with the best coaches, the best athletes in the world and pretty much took something from everybody. And never, never pigeonholed myself into one thing because I never thought that that was, that was, I never thought that that was going to work for me. And I'll tell you what, the biggest mistake I made was I let someone coach me. And I'm not going to say who I let someone coach me after I had like, honestly, the best prep of my life. I don't know why I felt the need to change things. And up until that point, I was coaching myself. Hayden was helping me a little bit, but he's there looking at me every day. So he was, he actually had some really good feedback to give me, but I let this someone else, uh, someone else coach me. And because I'm an athlete, anything that was written on that piece of paper that he was giving me, I would do like just exactly how it's written. Cause I was trusting the program. I was trusting the coach. I wanted to be a good athlete and I wanted to be diligent and consistent about it. And it was the worst thing I've ever done. Like my, my body broke completely. I, was not mentally, I wasn't, you know, if I wasn't able to do exactly what was written down on that piece of paper, I would just completely break down and it was the worst thing. So that's when I realized, you know, you know yourself better than anyone else, especially if you've been doing it for a while, once you've already mastered the fundamentals of your sport, you are the, you're the captain of your, of this ship. So only you can tell how you're feeling that day and whether or not something's moving in the right direction or not. So that whole thing about personal responsibility with your own training and being able to auto-regulate and being able to make decisions on your own and, and take some stuff, leave some stuff and just take what's working for you and dump what's not, you know, that's, that's a really important part of, of the whole thing. When people say that getting strong is easy, I would say yes to a certain extent until it's not, at which point it becomes this really complex algorithm thing that you have to figure out because there's so many different things that pop up right you're training and you tweak your ql oh no, no your knees bugging me oh no now your your squats going up but your deadlift isn't oh cool okay now i have bicep tendinitis for my squats because my squats went up and now my it's just this constant tug of war between all these different things that as you as you get stronger and reaching your your full absolute level of strength it becomes more and more complicated I think something that a lot of people need to focus on is, is, is that body awareness that you're talking about, you know, because you really need to be able to understand biofeedback, RPE, recovery, stress capacity, all those things. Um, but, and I know people listening to this are going to want an answer. <laughs> so should we go to failure, Steffi? What is the, what is your consensus on that after your experience of, of probably doing it too much and then maybe, I don't know if you've ever not done it enough, but I think there's a lot of people who don't ever touch failure. Where do you like to, to from a programming perspective, not for you personally? What, um, what's, what's the, what do you get tested on when you do a powerlifting meet? Bench squat deadlift. In the one rep max, right? It's yeah. a one rep max squat, a one rep max bench, a one rep max deadlift. That means that you better train yourself to be able to, you know, how do you express strength? In, in squat bench deadlift, you improve the ability of your motor neurons to produce force synchronously. You improve the speed at which the muscles contract. You improve your coordination. You improve your tensile strength and your connective tissue. You improve the calcium sensitivity in your muscles. Like all of these things, how do you think you train them? By, by training at 70%? Like that is just so mind blowing and ridiculous to me that people think that just by accumulating a ton of volume, they're gonna get a similar stimulus than actually doing the thing that you're gonna be tested in. It's just a matter of being intelligent with how you programming, program it and, and, and understanding that different things work for different people. I might be, I was able to tolerate four, 
four sessions, four squat sessions a week going to failure. I missed, you know, I missed so many reps so many times. And I was still in one piece and making progress like crazy for two years. Whereas Hayden couldn't tolerate that, that amount of squatting because he had been doing it since he was 13, right? His body wasn't fresh like mine. So, you know, I, going back to the topic of specificity, if that is what you're going to be tested on, you have to teach yourself how to handle the load at that point. Because anybody can lift great when you're lifting 50, 60, 70, 80%. Your squats will look pristine. Oh, perfect. Neutral spine. You know, your elbows are under the bar. You look so beautiful, whatever. And then you put 90% and you legit look like an accordion. You know, what's in, in, so what's the solution there? Just lower the weight? No, it's keep the weight and teach your body how to maintain those positions. Teach your body how to produce strength when you think that you're going to miss a lift. Teach your body. Have you seen how long it takes me for a deadlift to break the floor? It's like, six seconds of the bar being absolutely glued to the ground and then all of a sudden it comes up i taught myself how to do that you know if i would have not pushed myself to failure and actually taught myself what that feels like you know what what a heavy deadlift or a heavy squat feels like and how to overcome that then then i'm never gonna then i would have never been able to to lift heavy can some people get away with always staying submax and still make progress yeah do I think it's the best way? No, I think that you have to train the way that you're going to compete. And that is pushing your body to its absolute limits within reason and in an intelligent way. I'm not saying go max out every day. Like that's very irresponsible, but I'm saying if there are ways that you can incorporate that into your training so that you can get both sides of the, of, of the stimulus, you, you can get the accumulate, the accumulation phase has to be there. You know, when you're farther away from a meet, say five, four, even three, months away from the meet, you're accumulating a shit ton of volume. Then you drop that volume down, push that intensity up as the competition starts getting closer. Remove all other accessories, just focus on your squat bench deadlift, start pushing that intensity up, start pushing your, your five, your threes, your twos, your one rep maxes and see what you can do so that you have an idea for your competition. Actually, I'm not a big fan of doing one rep max, but uh, anything else? Yeah. I would even argue that some of the people that you can't even really do, even if 70% is okay, like you can get gains with 70% strength or hypertrophy. A lot of people don't know how to train at 70% if they haven't gone to 100% or past that. You know what I mean? I exactly. think that's a big problem. 100%. 100%. Do you think that the same exact concept applies to hypertrophy? Somebody's listening like, I don't give a shit about how strong I am. I just want to get jacked. Do you think it's the same thing? Because there's kind of like a lot of research on volume came out and everybody's like, oh, it's just volume. And then there's the intensity of camp, which by intensity, I mean effort, right? And then there's some people that are in the middle that are like, you can blend them or have like one or the other, but one of them needs to be there. Where do you sit? What do you think is best? Obviously, you need a combination of strength and hypertrophy to get the most amount of results to get as big as you can physically or genetically. Uh, but I think when it comes to training to failure for the purpose of hypertrophy, it's just such a safer bet and it's almost like it honestly it's like risk-free if you're if you're lifting lighter weights it's you're guaranteeing that you're you're guaranteeing to yourself that you're doing an adequate amount of work and that you're pushing yourself to the right intensity by getting to you know either fully failure or very close to failure like the point where like you're barely making that last rep it's a guarantee that you're working that you're working as hard as you need to to elicit the right training response like, because that was one of my main, so I tried to do bodybuilding for a time period there when I was uh, injured. And that was one of my main things. BPAC, Ben Pakulski was coaching me and I was like, dude, I don't know how heavy I need to do this exercise. And he'd just be like, dude, just move the weight, the heaviest that you can for these reps. And that way you're guaranteed that you're doing the right amount of, of, of load. Because who knows what's your uh, your bicep curl seven r r i r e r or your rp fucking seven in the tricep <laughs> who knows like do you really know no just do it as heavy as you can don't think about it just do it as heavy as you can yeah i, I almost think it's even easier with hypertrophy because the injury risk is so much lower you know exactly just based on exercise selection um 
Uh, so I want to be, I want to bring up your book because uh, I definitely don't want to skip that. Cause I know that's a big thing that you just launched. Um, so if we can spend a, a little bit on that, I know um, you've been, it's been cool to see your journey. I know you, you recently got injured, but it's been cool to see, you know, leaving powerlifting. And, and I did, I remember when you started posting about BPAC cause I'm a classic BPAC fan. So seeing that was really cool. Um, and then I've been seeing a lot of mixed martial arts stuff lately. So it, it, I mean, you're definitely living up to the hybrid performance method, which is really cool um, from not only a branding perspective, but just as like another athlete, like I just love seeing that. I think that's really cool. Um, but talk to us about your book because you got injured. I, I remember you talking a little bit about it on a podcast I listened to a while back, but I haven't heard much about it until you uh, last month launched it and we're posting about it and stuff. So fill us in with what made you decide to write that and, and obviously where people can find it, but what it's about, what it'll teach them. Yeah. So the, when I first started struggling with my back, I was in first year of grad school and being in a DPT, in a top 10 program DPT uh, class, I assumed that obviously the information that was being given to me was extremely accurate. And I had, I placed an insane amount of just trust and belief in, in my professors. Right. And I guess that was my first yes, disappointment with physical therapy. One of the reasons I don't practice, and we can get into that some other time, but I was just disappointed in how much variation there was between practitioner to practitioner, how there was seemingly no guideline or, or you know, concrete plan or answer or, or cohesive plan of care between practitioners, between clinicians. And I just kept getting more and more confused and, and started questioning more and more things because it really didn't make sense. Starting with the fact that, you know, I would go see one of my professors and explain to him what the situation was with my back. And they would jump into a conclusion, so into a diagnosis so fast. Oh, it's this. And then I would go to another one and they'd be like, oh, no, it's this. And then I would go to another one and they'd be like, oh, it's this. Eventually, I ended up with five completely different diagnoses that made that were not alike one another at all. And that's when I said, okay, man, I, I think I need to take matters in my own hands and I'm, I'm going to have to try to figure this one out on my own and see, see if I can, right? And that's kind of like where my, my initial, initial curiosity began for, for low back injuries and really understanding low back pain started, you know, understanding that just 80% of the population has a low back pain episode at some point in their life. Most of them, it becomes chronic or recurrent. It's the biggest cause for, for uh, work disability in the US. It leads to the most amount of dollars wasted because people can't go to work and so it just seemed like even, even not only for myself, but it seemed like something that was needed, you know, a voice that a voice and, a, and somebody to filter all the information that was out there from all of these years and somebody to, to put the most recent and the most accurate information out there that was not only based on the literature, but that was also based on actual practice which I was living right like I was going through it I'm, I'm an athlete I'm putting I'm, I'm putting my body to test like I felt like I was uh, very capable of putting together something that was quality and that could help people so that's kind of how it started I remember thinking just critically about certain things that were said to me about say the importance of stability for low back injuries, because that's that's the first thing people jump to, right? Oh, you have an un unstable segment. So one of the first uh, examinations that we do as a as therapist is we press on each spinal segment and we try to find which segment is hypermobile and which segment is hypomobile. And whichever segment is either hyper or hypomobile, we like blame all the issues on that segment. And then we claim that we can stabilize the hypermobile segment because that's, that's where the issue is coming from. And I remember and do all these other tests, like for example, a leg length discrepancy test or uh, trying to figure out if your hip was nutated or counter nutated, all these like things that we actually have proof that we cannot feel to the touch or see. Okay, and this is what we were being taught in school. And that just led me into this like crazy rabbit hole of like 
I don't even know what's, what we're being taught, why we're being taught this. I felt like such a phony, even in my, in my internships, doing these tests that, that had no validity, that were not specific enough, that were not sensitive enough, and that were not giving, not only they were not giving me the right information, but that they wouldn't change the plan of care at all. So that's kind of like where the spark for uh, writing this book came from. I initially just wrote up um, uh, back under the bar program. That's what it was called. I just kind of wrote a 12 week uh, therapeutic program for anybody who was struggling with back pain and then felt really irresponsible of just putting that out there without educating people because there is so much more to a back injury than the physical symptoms. You know, there's pretty much there's, and this is what we discussed in the book is that there's two camps or two two trains of thought when it comes to to low back injuries or honestly injuries in general there's the structural or mechanical view where you essentially and this is perpetuated by how much technology has evolved over the last years the access to mri and x-rays uh and us just loving to see and and draw a direct correlation between what we see in an mri and the pain that the person is experiencing so we know that that is not really the way it works, especially not for back for chronic or persistent pain, persistent back pain, because it's like, I, I think it's 56% of people from 20 to 30 years old have asymptomatic disc herniations. So we're seeing things that are most likely, just based on percentages, not the source of their pain. And this happens with many other things soccer players with um labral tears most of them have it it's like a, it's like something ridiculous like 70 percent have labral tears that they don't feel at all you know uh degenerative disease degenerative disease it you're you're the amount of people with degenerative disease or the amount of people as they age that have degenerative disease i think it jumps up to like 94 percent by the time that they're 70 94% of people that are 70 or 80 year old have degenerative disease. So it's that this change in perspective from what, like what is actually an abnormal finding in an MRI? Because it seems to me that based on, on those numbers, those are normal findings. Those are wrinkles on the inside. Those are guaranteed to happen because you're alive and because you're moving and because things wear. But that doesn't mean that they have to be painful. That doesn't mean they have to be painful. So the kind of opposite on this end of the spectrum is the biopsychosocial model of pain um, that basically considers uh, environmental factors, cultural factors, belief, pain perception, previous experiences into the equation and um, tries to make a, a point about what pain is and how we interpret pain and how we can use pain to to guide treatment. So for example, and this is my favorite analogy to use when I, when I explain pain is pain is similar to a smoke alarm. Sometimes the alarm goes off for no reason. You know, when you're cooking eggs and your alarm goes off, is there a fire? No, you know, you're just cooking your eggs and bacon, but the alarm is going off. Okay. So sometimes we have, we, maybe you travel to an Airbnb and you legit turn on the microwave and the alarm goes off. So there's alarms that are more sensitive than others. And then there's alarms that don't even go off when there's a fire, right? So we know those smoke alarms don't tell us about the severity. Don't tell us if there's a fire. Don't tell us about the severity of the fire. Sometimes they go off for absolutely no reason, you know, independently of what is going on. And, 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 and that's very similar to pain. It's very similar to pain. So we encounter a nociceptive stimulus, something from the outside that pokes us or whatever. That signal goes to our our, our uh, spinal cord. It goes into your our brain. The brain decides whether it's a threat or not. And then it sends a signal back and it tells you, yeah, yo, you know, be careful. Or it tells us, don't worry about it. It's not kind of thing. So it's not saying, this is not saying that pain is all in your head. It's just saying that there are a lot of factors that influence the way that you perceive the world and the way that you perceive pain that have, that especially with persistent pain, have the ability to, uh, either make you feel more pain or less pain. So again, like anything else in my life, I never put myself in one of the two camps. I'm not that type of person. I like to stay in the middle. You know, I like to recognize that sometimes there are structural changes that maybe 
painful, you know, that may be contributing to your pain. And sometimes they might be, there might be none. That was the example for me. So I got my first MRI, I think I, after a year of having persistent back pain, because getting an MRI as soon as you're in pain is not recommended because of the reasons I said. And when I got my results back, there was nothing. There was nothing. Dude, I was crippled. I was crippled. I'm like, I don't understand. I'm crippled. My, my, my back is so, so tight. It's so sore. I can't, I'm, I'm moving weird. I remember feeling like the distance between the distance that the bar had to travel, like from the floor all the way to lockout was bigger. Like I was literally perceiving the world around me differently, like, like a steeper hill or something. Uh, and that's all part of that pain perception thing. You're literally like your brain start, starts mapping things differently and starts, starts, trying to protect you of danger that it is in there. So that was shocking for me. I saw the MRI, there was nothing. I'm like, wow, that's, that's crazy. And that's just, you know, proof the concept of what I was explaining that the severity of, of an injury is, shouldn't be directly correlated with the severity of the damage. Because sometimes there might be pain without damage. Sometimes I'm saying all the time, but sometimes. So instead of the whole premise of the book is to move away from playing Sherlock Holmes of injuries, move away from trying to find a very specific diagnosis because it's a lie, okay? Like that's a sales tactic. You're, you, I, I don't have any, um, I'm, I don't practice, so I don't have, I, I'm not selling anybody anything, which is why I think I have like a unique perspective because I'm trained as a therapist, but I'm not trying to sell you on my services. So I think it's silly, you know, we, we, we don't know. We don't, we don't know. We don't know what exactly is the main contributing factor to somebody's pain. And we shouldn't be trying to figure that out because it doesn't matter. What matters is what uh, directional preference. So which motions increase, uh, increase your symptoms? Is it bending forward? Is it bending back? Is it twisting? Is it side bending? Once we, once we know which, uh, which motions are contributing to the pain, we eliminate the ones temporarily that are making the pain worse. Second thing is, does it get worse with compression or does it get worse with shear? We have a, just a couple of tests that we can do. Is it bending forward when your head is like farther away from your center mass or is it worse when you like push your, your body into a chair like with that compression or when you have a barbell on your back? Okay, which one bugs you? This one, okay. That we're gonna stay away from for the time being. And then once we've determined that, the plan of care is doing more of the things that don't bug your back, doing way less of the things that bug your back until your pain is calmed down. The goal should never be to be completely pain-free. The goal should be to be able to manage, manage pain, especially if you're training at the high level, it's unrealistic that you're not gonna have pain. It'll always be there. So, you know, just focusing on the things that we can control and giving people, instead of, giving people a diagnosis that with big words that are, that are fear mongering, that are terrifying, and that don't mean absolutely anything for them or for their plan of care. Let's just focus on, uh, on strategic and practical things that we can actually start implementing and doing, and that don't make you fearful of movement or fearful of the injury that you have. So it's all about delivering a positive movement experience. Oh, it's all about delivering a positive movement experience um, and uh, trying to trying to understand what pain means to you and how you can and how you can continue progressing without making your injury worse. And then obviously incorporating incorporating sorry the last step was incorporating the movements that you were once avoiding. That's called um, in order to decrease that sensitivity of the pain alarm. Right, it's not about avoiding the movement forever. It's about calming the pain down and then reintroducing those movements so you can build your tolerance and capacity for those movements again. I think it's really cool because number one, the book is written from an athlete's perspective, you know, versus just a doctor or just a therapist. Um, and it's always helpful when you find a therapist that actually lifts heavy too, you know, but even for as somebody who's not a doctor of physical therapy, I'm not a chiropractor, not a physical therapist, anything like that. I'm just a trainer. It's always hard when somebody has an injury or comes to you with an injury that wants to train and they're seeing a therapist and you don't necessarily agree with everything that they're saying or, or putting into practice, but you also can't overstep your boundaries. Or you, And even if you feel confident enough to do it, it's always kind of scary, you know, because you're like, Fuck, 
that's their doctor telling them. So they have faith in that person. You feel bad because it is fear mongering. Um, so that's cool. I, I'm excited to check it out. I actually didn't know. I heard you talk about a podcast months ago. And then um, I, when I was scoping through your Instagram today before the interview, I saw it and was like, oh, it's out. So I'm going to grab a copy. Where can everybody find it? Because I think this is as somebody. So I've been training people for 10 years um, and I worked in a gym setting for six years before I really started building my online business. Without a doubt, low back pain is the number one injury I would see, you know, whether it was serious lifters or it was just the everyday person off the street. So I think it's, it's definitely a valuable piece of content for lifters, coaches, everybody really. So, um, but yeah, where can everybody find that? Yeah, you can purchase it uh, on the hyperperformancemethod.com website. If you just click the tab back in motion, it's right there. Cool. I'll, I'll put that link in the show notes as well as everything else. Where, where can everybody find you? I know you put out a ton of content. Where are the main places people can kind of learn from you? Uh, you can learn from me on YouTube, Steffi Cohen, or Instagram, Steffi Cohen, and keep up with all of our stuff from hybrid at hybrid from this method. Love it. Awesome. Well, um, again, I don't want to hold you too much longer. I have like probably 10 more questions I could ask you about training and, and all this stuff. So um, what's that? You can do a part two. Somewhere. Yeah, I, I would love that because there's, there's so many routes that I could take with this. I think you have a lot of experience in so many different realms and you have an interesting take. Um, and most of all, like I love how uh, you're very brutally honest and confident about what you say. And, and it's, and it helps that you're actually smart so you can back it up, you know, but, um, but I, I think you have a really good balance of experience and, and science and evidence-based, which I think we need more and more and more of in this industry. So I love watching your content, listening to your content. And um, it's been a pleasure to have you on. So really thank you for, for your time today. Thank you so much for having me.